I want to invite you to stand with me as we begin reading in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. The Bible says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another with love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurred the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You may be seated. I told my wife when we got home last evening and we're getting the kids to bed about how grateful I was that it happened to be on this Sunday that we came to this text as we've been traveling through Hebrews. Because I know where you're sitting, you can't see my Bible, but, but this is just an old pew Bible that I write in and I highlight in. And I've highlighted almost this entire section. And it's got a little asterisk that I've made at verse 19, and it's got places where I've underlined because... I love this text so much, and quite honestly, as we've been going through Hebrews, we have been building up to this text for weeks now, and you may have not known that, but I did, that that everything we've been looking at, time after time, where we have heard about Christ being our high priest, and we have heard about him going into the holy places for us, and we have heard about him making sacrifices for us, it was all coming to this passage where he says in verse 19, therefore, all of this stuff, 
These ten and a half chapters have been for this transitional word of therefore. Because all of this, all of these things that we have read and studied and learned together, all of them have great meaning for us. And it is simply not some theological meaning that we can gain out of this, that we have some knowledge in our mind, but rather there's practical application here. And we've been waiting for that. Some of you have been desiring that. You, you want to pass all the other stuff and get to this, but, but this has very little meaning to us unless we understand all of the rest. He says, therefore... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place, did we have that confidence before Christ? No. If you've been here more than 30 seconds over the last several weeks, you would know that before Christ, we had no opportunity to enter into the presence of God. He says, but now, therefore, since we have this new and living way, since Christ has purchased us, with his blood, since he has ripped this curtain that separated us from God, since that is gone, therefore, something can now happen that could not happen before. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, he says, therefore, brothers... And if you skip through all of these things that he's reminded us of for so many chapters, we come to verse 22. Therefore, first thing, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I don't know how many times I have said since we started this in December and January and February and March, and now we're to April. We've, we've went through over 10 sermons so far in the book of Hebrews. And he says, let us draw near. So many believers in Christ will not draw near to God because they are deeply afraid that they are not worthy. And God has reminded us, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, that we are exactly correct That we are completely unworthy to draw near to God. But, since Christ has made a way, we can draw near. And he doesn't tell us here to draw near in some timid spirit. He doesn't want us to draw near with, with being scared that somehow the closer we get, maybe we will be rejected by God, or maybe God will not accept us, or maybe there'll be something we do that draws God's anger, and we can no longer have fellowship with Him. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, draw near with, full, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full Assurance. See, I've met with so many people. I've talked even with some of you. Who you struggle with this idea that you're fully God's. Because so often we as believers, we, we feel like we're on this fence. 
And, and not that we've, we've put ourselves there, but that's just where we are. And we're, we're kind of on this fence, and, and, and depending on how we shift our weight, and depending on the day and where we go, it, it almost feels like we're going to fall off. And let's be honest, there are some days where we do fall off, and we have to climb back up, and we struggle to do that, and we want to at least get back on the fence. But God tells us that that's not where we have to live That's not where we stay. That's not where our residence is. We have full assurance that we are completely God's. That he owns us completely regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of if we fall off this fence that we think we're on. Regardless of the days, and they are many, where we come up short. We have full assurance and he wants us in that to draw near see he says the second part of verse 22 with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water how did that happen how was our conscience and our heart cleaned was it by something we did was it by some effort that we made of course not He spent all these chapters telling us that it was because Christ has died for us that our minds and our hearts are wiped clean. And so since they have been wiped clean by Christ and not our own doing, do you think we can mess them up again? Do you think we can defile them again? Do you think we can rip them out of the hands of God? It's not possible. Because He holds us And I'll be honest with you, when I read those passages in the Bible that talk about God holding us and God protecting us, I realize in the end, after everything is said and done, at the end of the day, the one that he is protecting me most from is myself. It's my own ability to destroy my life. It's my own ability to sin against him. The devil's out there working against us and reaching for us, but ultimately God saves me daily from my own mistakes and my own sin and my own incompetence. So if that's true, if you believe this morning that this is a true fact, that this is a true statement that God is making here in his word, he calls on us to draw near, not to run away. Not to cower in fear. Not to be scared of what God is going to do. We go back to Genesis chapter 3 and we find Adam and Eve in the garden. And as God walks through the garden in the cool of the evening, he calls on them to draw near. They had this perfect fellowship with God and And he tells them in the garden, he he calls them. He calls their name. He he wants to continue that fellowship and relationship that they have had since the moment that he created them. And what do they do? They have ran away. They have hid themselves. They're scared to enter the presence of God. Friends, some of you are like that. Some of you have that fear. Because when you enter into God's presence, when you, 
seek to have fellowship with him and have that relationship with him that he desires. Sometimes it's going to mean that God sends and does sends you places and does things with you that you're uncomfortable with. My brother was sharing a minute ago about that that well-known phrase, God won't put more on you than you can handle. That's I hate that. I'll just be honest with you. I hate it because our God's a lot bigger than that. I can't handle anything. I can't, I can't get anything together. Some of you know that. You're like, we know, Pastor. You're incompetent in a lot of ways. We're well aware of that. Well, you are too, so let's just be honest. Of course God puts more on you than you can handle. Of course God places more on you than you can be responsible for on your own. You're unworthy to do anything for him. So anything that you accomplish that brings him glory is because he has placed that burden on you and then he carried you through whatever it was. But many of us live like Adam and Eve. We hide somewhere so that God won't ask us to do anything. So that God won't won't send us anywhere so that God won't do any of the hard stuff in our life. This verse tells us that we can draw near to God in full confidence because he has died on the cross for us. He has torn the veil. He has passed through to the other side. He is the high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. Secondly, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast. We live in a time where even people who claim the name of Christ refuse to hold fast. They waver. They're fickle. They're wishy-washy. Whichever phrase you want to use, that represents most people who claim the name of Christ. Friends, if this is true, I think it is. I don't know about all of you, but I believe this is true. If it is true, we are to hold fast to this confession today. And we're to hold fast to this confession tomorrow. And we're to hold fast to this confession regardless of what it is that happens to us. When we go into chapter 11 in a few weeks when I get back from Asia and we begin looking at this long list that the writer of Hebrews gives us as he talks about all of these people who have faith. If you get to the end of that list, and it's not one that we have looked at a whole lot, but we're going to look at it in a few weeks. It talks about all these people who have died and been tortured and imprisoned for their faith. And not only did they do it for their faith, but they went to prison and they went to their torture and they went to their death in their faith. This says, if God be true, if Christ has really died for you, then let us grab hold of this confession that we have Let us hold true to the fact that Christ has died for our sins. The fact that our God has said that He is the only way. There's none other. There's no other path that leads to God. 
There's no other way that leads to God. We're going to land in a few days in a country that has millions upon millions of people who worship a false idol. And the Word of God says that they have no hope apart from Christ. Go to the country of India today, and there are more than a billion people who worship millions of gods, and not one of them is true. You can go into their homes, and you can see their idols lining their house, and not one of them is true. I'm excited when we go to Thailand to visit this Buddhist temple, and the whole thing, it's, it's white, and it's, it's beautiful. It's going to be one of the most beautiful places that I've ever stepped foot on. With the people who go there to meditate and to worship, worship falsely. Friends, what benefit is it to others if we do not hold fast to the confession that God has given us? And we try to tell people who remain in their sin, their sin of idolatry, that they're okay. What good does it do them when one day, as the Bible describes here, they they stand in judgment? Well, friends, the biggest thing we can do to combat that is to hold fast to our confession of faith. We should, he tells us, at the end of verse 23, for he who promised is faithful. I I think of a passage like Isaiah 55 that, that tells us that his word does not return void, but it accomplishes everything that he intends for it to do. See, you and I get caught up and we get worried about things that might have happened or things that didn't happen or we, we wanted it to happen this way or that way, but we fail to realize that all God calls us to do is be faithful, to be faithful to what His Word has said and trust that in time, in His time, it is going to do exactly what He wants it to do. And I don't know what that is. I don't know what it will be. I don't know what it'll be this morning as as I share with you this portion of God's Word or what it'll be in Sunday school as you look at that portion of God's Word or what it'll be when we share with our kids tonight a portion of God's Word. I don't know what He's going to do about it, but He calls us to hold fast to His Word and be faithful. And when we are, let me promise you that He will do something extraordinary. We draw near. We hold fast to the confession in verse 24, he, he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. If you're reading through the book of Hebrews, and you've read about everything that has happened, you, you've read about what Christ has done in going to the cross, you, you read about what he has done in standing in between us and God as our mediator and high priest, I I think you wouldn't have expected to come to this in verse 24. Because if you think about it, he hasn't talked a lot about the community of faith together. He's talked a lot about what Christ has done for you, and he has talked about what Christ has done for his church, but here he talks about us together. If Christ be true... If His Word is true, if what He has done is true, then He calls on us in verse 24 to stir up one another to love and good works. 
Friends, what the Bible tries to do here is to bring us together. Everything else in the world tries to rip us apart. Everything else that is going on tries to divide us. Because the more we are divided, the less effective we are for the gospel. Plain and simple. See, you can't do this on your own. I can't do this on my own. We, we cannot operate as individuals. The Bible just doesn't give us that luxury. I would use these two verses for anyone who tries to tell me that they can, they can have church on their own. I have church on Sunday mornings. You know, I, I watch, I don't know what you watch here, where I, where I moved from, everybody watched uh, Spartanburg, everybody watched Don Wilton, and they went to church there, except that's not how it works. That's not what Don Wilton would tell you. And some people go to church with Charles Stanley. Well, not if you live here. If you live here, you watch Charles Stanley preach on TV. If you live in Atlanta, you can go to church with Charles Stanley, but you don't do that here. Because that's not how we operate. That's not how we're to function. We can't do it on our own. You might think you can, but let me promise you that if you go find people who've tried to do the Christian walk on their own, they've failed. They've burned out. They've fallen into sin. They've had no one to hold them accountable. They had no one to come behind them and encourage them. They've had none of that. Because there was no one there present in their life to stir up one another to love and good works. It didn't happen. It just doesn't work that way. Look what he says in verse 25 about it. He says, as a matter of fact, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Next time you wake up on a Sunday morning, I get paid to come here on Sunday mornings. I know, you know, it's my job. It's what I do. Let me promise you this. If I wasn't a pastor, I'd be in church on Sunday morning because I always have been. Mom and dad made me a lot when I was a kid. By the time I was a teenager, mom and dad were sick. I got in the car, went to church. They couldn't drive me. I called somebody and went to church. So I don't want to hear the excuses. If that wasn't you, I'm sorry. I did it. You can do it. Whatever. Next time you wake up on a Sunday morning and it's cold or it's rainy or you're tired because you're in an outdoor weekend all day and you're really sleepy, Go to Hebrews chapter 10 and read verse 25. Because he tells us not to neglect meeting together. Not to do it. Why? Because we need you here and we need your money. No. Because we need to count the numbers to send into the Southern Baptist Convention so they'll think we're important. No. It's not for our benefit. It's for yours. It's for all of our benefit that we get together and we fellowship together and that we hear the word preached and we hear the word sang We get together and we worship with one another. That's what God has called us to do. He tells us, do not neglect it, but at the end of verse 25, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you realize that today we are closer to when Christ will return for his church than we were yesterday? Now, I'm not saying it's tomorrow. I'm not saying it's on Tuesday or it's on June 5th, 2013, or 16, or whenever. I was going to say 13. I missed that one already. But I'm saying we're closer today than we were yesterday. 
And you know what? If we wake up in the morning, we'll be a day closer. And think about this. We're nearly 2,000 years closer than when this was written. So how much more do we need to meet together and encourage one another as that day is drawing near? Because, friends, I'm going to fly to a country in two days that has millions of people who do not know Christ. And many have never heard of him. But think about it like this. We live in a county of thousands of people who do not know Jesus Christ. And many, whether you believe this or not, have never heard his name. They've driven by our church. They've seen our sign. They've never heard about who Jesus is. Three or four years ago, leading a Bible club, a parent of an eight-year-old called me afterwards, eight years old, Western North Carolina, said, you know, this was probably the first time my daughter had ever heard anything about Jesus. She didn't say it like she was concerned or messed up, but it just kind of dawned on her, hey, we've never been to church. I bet she's never heard about Jesus. Thousands here who have never heard. How will we do it unless we encourage one another Unless we stir one another to good works as the day is drawing near. He gives us these three things. These three, let us, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider how to stir. These three things in response. But he gives in verses 26 through 31 a typical response for many believers, or at least many who call themselves believers. He says these three things should be your response to the gospel, your response to the fact that Christ has died for you. But look at this. He says, verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Think about that. Verse 26 is in direct response to Verses 19 through 25. Either you're going to do these three things that he's called you to do, or he doesn't call it you're going to mess around. He doesn't call it you're going to backslide. He doesn't call it you're going to be an ineffective Christian or an immature Christian. What does he say? He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately... In other words, if we have Christ or say we have Christ and we aren't drawing near to God, we aren't holding fast to the confession, we aren't stirring each other up in love, for if we go on sinning deliberately, he makes the connection there that to not do these things is sinning because it's not taking advantage of what God has given us. He says, but in verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He doesn't mix words here. You probably figured that out. We've been in here since December. He doesn't mix words. He doesn't sugarcoat what's going on. He says, as a matter of fact, going back to the Old Testament as a comparison, verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think are deserved by those who spurn the Son of God 
and profane the blood of the covenant by which he sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. If you go back to the Old Testament, you could be put to death on the, on the uh, testimony of two or three witnesses, and they would do so without mercy. You know, now in the state of North Carolina, if someone is given the death penalty by a jury of their peers, it's automatically appealed to a higher court. That's, that's a good thing. I mean, I think it's a good thing we work that out and we go through the whole thing of making sure people are really guilty. But with the law of Moses, two or three witnesses and they took you out and they killed you. No mercy. How much more so, he says, how much more so should we expect there to be judgment for those who profane the Son of God? If this law of Moses that he has talked about throughout the whole book of Hebrews, that he talks about being a shadow and being incomplete, if he talks about those things and you can die, two or three witnesses, do you not think that it's serious when we profane the blood of Christ? I went to high school with some guys who I thought were just they were just super Christians. And I was younger than they were, and they were leaders in my youth group, and I just thought they were fantastic. I mean, they were the spiritual examples. You know, they had their Bibles all the time, and they were in Christian bands, and it was, it was incredible. I thought, man, I want to be just like those guys because they're super spiritual. Now there's two of them who are open and devout atheists. I mean, devout atheists. I mean, they're the type that they get out on the internet and they bash Christians and they want to debate with Christians and rip them down and and they follow all of these supposedly intellectual people who are atheists and they know how to quote them and they're, that's what they're into. You know, one of them went to a Christian college and he dropped out and rejected that and the one who was in a a Christian band and was, and was serving the Lord, he's, he's done away with that. He wants nothing to do with that. They were my spiritual examples. What lies ahead for them? Because, listen, I know they know this. They went to churches where this was proclaimed and preached. They, They knew the word of God. But they have profaned the blood of Christ. Profaned it. Completely and utterly profaned it. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? He leaves that open for you, but I I think we know the answer. The question is rhetorical. If you you insult God by, by saying you love Him and by saying that you have taken advantage of the great gifts that He has given us in Christ and that you are a part of the inheritance that lies ahead of us and you profane the blood of Christ. Well, listen, friends, it doesn't mean that you have to become a devout atheist who bashes the faith. But are you drawing near to Christ in full confidence? Are you holding fast to the confession, or is it something that you can compromise? Is it just for Sunday mornings? Is it something that it can be tinkered with on Monday? 
Is it something that when you're put on the spot about it, you, you want to kind of, well, listen, I'm a pastor. All I got to do to end a conversation like that is say I'm a pastor. And nobody's trying to get me to do something crazy. You know, I don't get invited to crazy parties. There's no drug dealers hitting me up because I'm a pastor. Now, there might be some drug dealers that come by during the week. They're wanting money for us to pay their power bill. I don't know why the drugs aren't doing it, but whatever. But they're not doing that to me. But all of you, you, you get that choice during the week. I'm not hanging out with you, putting my arm around you at work, being like, hey, you probably shouldn't tell that joke. Hey, maybe that's not a good idea. Hey, remember what I said on Sunday during my sermon? I don't do that. You get that option. But it is my job to tell you this morning that he's not talking here just about my friends who have claimed the name of Christ and then went off the deep end. He, he's saying this is before us. I've yet to find a place here where he's really talking about non-church people in the book of Hebrews. He's been talking to us the whole time. He's been telling us some hard things. And so he tells us, hold fast to this confession. He says in verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge. He says, verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God takes it seriously when we do not take advantage of the death of his son. He did all the work in sending his son to die for us. So he doesn't take it lightly when we just want to hang out with him on Sunday morning. When our our faith is cheap and easy. He says, but rather there's an alternative. The last portion of this passage, he says there's there's an alternative. You, You could keep on sinning, but that's not what you're supposed to do. That's not what you've been called to do. He says in verse 32, but recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He, he tells these folks that he's talking to here in the book of Hebrews because it seems like some of them have kind of fallen into that trap of, of living in their sin and, and not following after God. He says, I want you to recall the former days when you were first saved, when you were first enlightened, he says here. I want you to remember those times. Because what did you do? He says, in those former days, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He says in verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He says, if you go back to when you were saved, sometimes it was embarrassing for you in public. Sometimes bad things would happen. Now, for us, the most difficult thing that ever happens to us is somebody, you know, oh, you're a square or whatever because you're a Christian. Oh, you won't do this or that. In the time that he's writing, oh, you're a Christian, let's take you out and beat you. Oh, you're a Christian, let's take you and put you in an arena with lions that are going to rip you apart. Oh, you're a Christian, let's put uh, hot oil on you and set you up as a candle in the courtyard of the emperor. Oh, you're a Christian, let's take you and behead you or crucify you upside down or exile you to an island. We can't really relate to what he's talking about here. Because you might get poked fun at a little bit. You might not get invited to where all the cool kids hang out. And listen, some of you are 50 and 60 years old, and they're still cool kids, okay? They're just older now with wrinkles and gray hair, but they're still the cool kids. 
and you still want to be invited to do their stuff. And you might not get to because you're a Christian. Boo-hoo-hoo. Cry me a river, but I don't care. I'm going to Thailand where people still die for their faith. I'm going to be preaching to pastors who are coming to countries, and I need to listen to them probably more than they need to listen to me. He says, before you would endure sufferings in public humiliations and afflictions. Sometimes even you were friends with people, partners with those who got treated like that. He says in verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They would come and take the property of believers and the believers would stand by and would they cry? No. Did they go get their guns? No. What did they do? They said, hey, You can have all this stuff because my stuff's in heaven. You can have all this stuff. You can take it, do whatever, because my stuff's in heaven. I'm not worried about it. I've got an inheritance that you can't take that's uncorruptible, that's undefilable, and God keeps it for me in heaven, so take this stuff. I didn't need it anyways. That doesn't sound like us. It doesn't sound like me. I mean, I've got things that I keep in a cabinet at my house to prevent people from coming and taking my stuff. Some of you tried it out yesterday when we were at the outdoor weekend. It works. This is what they did. He says in verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which, is, which has a great reward. See, I think that's the reason that you and I are not as effective as we could be for the gospel. Because at the slightest thing... We throw away the confidence that we have in God. Instead of looking at this list and seeing, okay, we're going to have sufferings and we're going to have struggles and we're going to have contempt poured upon us, we need to endure. No, we throw that away and say, God, why is it so hard? We say, God, I, I think you've put more on me than I can handle. And we cry. And we have our pity party. And we whine about it. And we put it on Facebook. And it's so hard. And then what do we do? We give up. We go to the house. We sit at home. We throw in the towel. And we're finished. And friends, how many people who once claimed the name of Christ are sitting home this morning and they're watching infomercials and they're not relating to the body of Christ because they gave up. And they didn't give up because someone came in and beat them half to death and made fun of them and took all their stuff. No, they gave up because the carpet's not their color. They gave up because they painted the walls the wrong color. They gave up because they didn't get picked first for the team. Can you imagine... One day standing before the God of the universe who spoke, didn't even lift a hand, he spoke, and everything that is was created. Who sent his son to die the most horrific death possible for you. Who was publicly humiliated. Who had all of his stuff taken. And he looks down at you and he says, why, why did you neglect the fellowship? 
you're not going to look back up at him and say, well, God, I didn't like the color of the carpet. You want to talk about a ticket straight out of there, look up at God and say, I didn't like the color of the carpet. Because he doesn't care. Because I've worshipped in churches that have no floor, much less carpet, that have no windows. He doesn't care. How is it that we think we could stand before God caring about things that matter so little? He says, do not throw away your confidence, which is your great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance. Need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Because doing the will of God is a sign that He has infected your heart with His Spirit. He says for in verse 37, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So we have a choice. You have a choice this morning. I have a choice. We have a choice each and every day. Verse 39 gives us this choice. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let me promise you that this week you're going to face this choice. And it might be in a little situation. It might not be in a life-altering, life-changing situation. But you're going, to, you're going to face this. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So what's it going to be? What's it going to be? What are you going to do when that choice is set before you? Oh, I'm not saying that someone's going to come and put a gun in your face this week because most likely that's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, let's take the odds. Who's most likely in this room to get that to happen to them this week? I'm going through China and then into Thailand. I've probably got the odds beat on all of you. But what about... When you go to work tomorrow, and they have no idea that you are a believer in Christ. Let's be honest. This room this size, this many people, there's a chance that's true, right? They got no idea. You sneak to church on Sundays, and you sneak back. I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. Sometimes people that do that are a lot nicer church members than people that are there every single day. But that choice will be presented to you in the morning. Are you going to shrink back like a coward? See, that's the cowardly thing to do. To have someone die in your place. And when you have the opportunity to thank him for his death, you shrink back. But God doesn't say shrink back and get a pat on the back at Judgment Day, does he? He said shrink back and be destroyed. Shrink back and prove your true colors. Shrink back and prove that his death means nothing to you. Or, or we can have faith. Those are the options. 
He says, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us stir one another up. Friends, if we do those things, think about that. If we draw near to God, if we hold fast to what is true, and we bring others along with us, what more is the Christian life supposed to be? Isn't it the whole thing summed up in those verses? This is all that God has called us to do, to draw near and rely on Him, to hold fast to what is true, and to see that others come with us. We want heaven to be a full place, not empty. So many churches said empty. So many congregations struggling. But that's not to be a reflection of heaven. This morning, if you don't know Christ, these are your choices as well. You can keep pushing it off and you can keep rejecting Him and you can keep trying to do something else and do your own thing and that's fine. Let me promise you, this is not Michael Pardue talking. This is the Word of God. There's no hope in doing that. There's none. It doesn't matter if you are the poorest person in the world, if you're the most wealthy person with the most degrees on your wall, with the most education. It it means nothing without Christ. Or we can have faith. We can turn from doing it ourselves. We can turn from our sin and we can grab a hold of God. We can reach out as His hand is extended to us, as His promises have been extended to us. That's the choice before you. It's the choice we have every week. It's not new just because we came to this chapter. But now you know. This is what God has called us to do. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray?